Hail and well-met, Traveler. Welcome to the Tavern. Did you know this is the place where more than half of the greatest adventures in history have begun? But before those adventurers took their first steps, they watched and calculated who would join their party. Why look over there? There's a mighty barbarian from the Frozen Lands. Strong, mighty, full of honor and wisdom. I happen to know that one. They go by Matt Rossi. And look over there to the right. That woman working away on her mechanical dog. She's cunning, witty, and I've seen her bounce more than her fair share of ne'er-do-wells out of here before I can even blink. I happen to know that she goes by the name Liz Harper. And me? Oh, my name's Joe Perez. And I'll be your tavern keeper. Welcome to Tavern Watch. Hello, weary travelers, and welcome to Tavern Watch. Uh, where we talk about all things in the tabletop space. Uh, I am one of your tabletop-friendly folks, uh, Joe Perez. With me are my wonderful companions in this traveling party of adventurers, Matt Rossi and Liz Harper. How are you doing today? Hello, hello. I have spent the past couple of weeks coming up with D&D game statistics for various prehistoric animals that are not dinosaurs. <laughs> I mean, that is ridiculously on brand for you. <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm actually hoping to eventually release this as a book. Like just, you know, hey, you're tired of the exact same three dinosaurs and every time you use a D&D, here's stuff that's not dinosaurs. But I might actually also put in like really obscure dinosaurs. No, like, I mean, nev yeah. never, <laughs> never saw that coming. I'm just, you know, Ankylosaur, Tyrannosaur, Triceratops, and Brontosaurus, and they, everyone's done. And nowadays, raptors, but they don't even get the right ones. So, yeah, that's, that's something I've been thinking about. But well, we, we will. Been, go ahead. If it's been in Jurassic Park, someone will make a D&D &D monster out of it. 100%. Uh, but mm -hmm. we will be the ones that break the news when the, the Matt Rossi Dinosaur Compendium for uh, uh, various tabletop role-playing games comes out. Trust me. But we have other stuff that we're going to cover today uh, with some other new stuff real quick. And then we're going to get into our, our big topics. Uh, so we did finally get a release date for Vox Machina Season 2, uh, which is relevant to, I think, a lot of our listeners, uh, as well as those of us here on the show. Looks like it will be releasing in January of 2023, so coming up relatively quickly, uh, which is fascinating because that's a breakneck pace, really, because it feels like the season one just released, right? Like this year, not too long ago. I'm asking you guys, question mark. It, it was this year. Absolutely, it was this year. Yeah. I mean, it could be that they were already already in production for it, but yeah, it's really fast. And uh, I'm not going to spoil anything, but Vox Machina has a lot more ties to Critical Role Season 3, Campaign 3, going on right now. Uh, so this could actually be a really useful catch-up. <laughs> Yeah, and that's and that's something that I think is interesting. If you've been interested in the the critical role stuff uh, and didn't want to go through the entire backlog, because there's a lot of it, there's a lot of content out there to consume, and it's not everybody's cup of tea. Uh, this is actually a really great way to do it, and I highly recommend season one. Uh, there is a lot of adult themes in it, uh, as it is an adventuring party of um, 
murder NPCs or murder PCs, because <laughs> let's be honest, they are they are, they are the personification of what I would expect a normal D and D party to be at this point. Uh, so, but it, it's well worth the the time and it's well worth the watch if you're into that. Uh, the animation style is very good. The voice acting is top notch as you would expect, uh, and the story is actually relatively compelling. And they do a really good job of taking what is a uh, a long, long campaign or at least series of campaigns and, and, and character growth and arcs and condensing it down into something that makes sense, which is always a struggle. Um, anything to add with that before we move on to the next parts? I will say I this. Mean, oh, no, go ahead, Liz. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, certainly the problem with watching a TTRPG stream, whether it's Critical Role or anything else, is that because this is a live improv thing, this is not something scripted you get low spots. You get spots that are not very exciting. You meander around. So I think probably the best thing about uh, Vox Machina, the uh, animated series on Amazon, is that they've they've kind of streamlined it and made like a really coherent story. Not that it wasn't good already, but they've taken all of those like rough edges off of what was an improv thing. Hey, there's no Tiberius, so already, you know, thumbs up. <laughs> um, uh, no my, comment. Thing, my thing on it is, I, I, this is not blowing shade at Campaign 1 or Critical Role or anything, but it can be very hard to actually understand what's going on in terms of character stories when they are presented to you in four-hour chunks over the course of like a hundred or so episodes. Like, think about like how much actual time it will take you to watch the entirety of campaign one at 400 hours or so. Um, it's campaign two, even longer. So man, if they ever decide to do an animated show about that, yay. Uh, so in a way, like one of the things I thought watching it was that it's much easier to understand what's going on with these characters in this show than it is watching the original series, because there's an actual narrative structure to the show. Um, and for example, I, I actually know what Percy's deal is much more effectively now. <laughs> I, had, I had a very hard time figuring out what Percy's deal was for a while there. Watch these. Boom. You will know what Percy's deal is. Uh, so yeah, um, I think it's a, it's a really good format. And I think it's a really good animated series. One of the better ones. I remember this year, I was very much surprised by Invincible mm -hmm. and by uh critical role you know the the legend of vox machina two shows i didn't expect much at all from and both of which despite having some really graphic bits in them actually had a lot of nuance and storytelling heart to them so yeah i was i was pleased by both yeah there there's a lot of of compelling storytelling and a lot of compelling emotion in both of them surprisingly so well worth your time to watch a watch if you if you that's sort of your thing um the other thing that I wanted to bring up, or at least another item that I thought was interesting, is that uh, the RPG Kids on Bikes is getting a second edition. It looks like it just hit Kickstarter and is already fully funded. Um, normally, I don't like to bring up Kickstarters because various reasons, but uh, it looks like it's already funded, which means it's going to be in production and print, which means you're going to be able to get your hands on it without having to uh, go with it. But Kids on Bikes is a really interesting uh, rules light RPG that I don't think we've really talked about before, but I know is wildly popular. Uh, in human space now. Uh, I've seen a bunch of copies get sold. I've seen it be a really great introduction. Uh, it's essentially a choose your own destiny uh, rules like tabletop game where you essentially play kids on bikes solving <laughs> mysteries and going on adventures in, you know, generic small town number seven, uh, where it has sort of uh, essences of whether it is 
uh, it with like the kids like trying to go after Pennywise or uh, Scooby Doo or Stranger Things. It could be any of those, all of those, or none of those, depending on what you want. It's very narrative driven, uh, and it's very much a uh, basically powered by the characters, and it's all about collaborative world building. Um, so I'm actually really excited to see uh, Kids on Bikes get a second edition because that was the first game that they came out with uh, to good reception. And then they went to this was Hunter's Entertainment, uh, followed up with Teens in Space, which is exactly what it sounds like, uh, whether you are you know on a ship or a space station or whatever, you are kids in space. Uh, and then Kids on Brooms, which, you know, you pretty much can see where they're going with this. Uh, but those are really well defined and very good uh, and like rules compendiums that they learned from their mistakes and customer feedback and player feedback and sort of grew from there. So getting a second edition, I think is really important. It's also a really great entry point for folks that are maybe on the fence about playing in role-playing games and want to have a rules light experience. So I don't know if either of you have played any of those games or if this is something that was even on your radar before now. I knew about kids on bikes because uh, when I was introduced to it, someone said, "You remember that Deb novel by Robert McCammon, Swan Song?" I was like, "No." Do you remember Boy's Life? No, I'm not really up on Robert McCammon novels. But I went and looked at it, and then I went and looked at, Swan, at uh, both Swan Song and, and Boy's Life, and it, it it is very much like Boy's Life. Uh, Boy's Life is sort of like simultaneously a coming of age story set in the '50s with a kid on a bike. Uh, and it's also about, you know, the Ku Klux Klan and racism and also supernatural evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, so it kind of had elements that reminded me of it. I haven't actually played it. I'll be completely upfront. It reminds me a bit of quest. If you remember quest from a while back, mm-hmm. uh, it has similar elements of just trying to make it as stripped down an experience as possible while still, you know, it's still a game. So yeah, I, I like it, but I haven't really gotten much chance to do much with, unfortunately. I don't know if Liz actually has seen it or thinks much about it. Uh, This was not on my radar until you sent this link, Joe. But one of the things that I love about Kickstarter is the variety of TTRPGs you get there. And things that would not have been published through any kind of traditional publishing system, like uh, Coyote and Crow, which came out I want to say it came out early this year, but I yeah. may be totally wrong because uh, time Kick- is confusing. Kickstarter last year, physical inventory shipped earlier this year, and now retailers have it in stock as of a month ago, two months ago. So I just, I love the variety of content we see because of crowdfunding campaigns like this. Yeah, and Hunter's Entertainment is is no stranger to that either. There's some other other games that we, I know we've talked about in the past, like Alice is Missing, uh, which is an RPG played entirely via text message. Um, that was one of theirs as well. Uh, they have another one called Icarus, which is all about how great civilizations fall. Uh, maybe a little too on the nose for some folks right now, but you know, it's there. Uh, and they have other things where they've like have survival horror ones where they, you know, simulation stuff. Uh, but they're sort of all over the place and do a lot of really cool and experimental RPGs. So definitely they would not be able to do this had they not had wildly successful Kickstarter campaigns. Crowdfunding has really sort of exploded the TTRPG uh, table space in a good way. Yeah. Absolutely a good way. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty involved in quite a few of the White Wolf, uh, not White Wolf, sorry, Onyx Path now. Quite a few of the Onyx Path uh, Kickstarters. Um, like I, when they did the, uh, they were bringing out the three A books, uh, Aeon, Aberrant, and uh, Adventure. I was in that Kickstarter, and I got paid 
uh, from them, they, they, they had me write a little piece for Wraith, uh, their Book of Oblivion. So, yeah, the Kickstarter is one of the reasons I even have a, some professional credits. Now, So, yeah, I, I, I feel like we, we almost don't understand yet how much Kickstarter has changed the landscape for role-playing games because it's sort of taken production out of the hands of a few big companies it's, and, and democratized it in a way that we haven't seen since like the old days of roll aids and stuff. Yeah. So there's an, not to interject a little bit of a story, but I think some of our listeners will actually find this fascinating. So one of my employees, actually his father is the, uh, one that created games like classical hack, which was back in the olden days you had, uh, like tabletop miniature wargaming and RPG version books that were sort of uh, independently produced and produced in small quantities by whoever could get their hands on it and, and pay to have it published or, or printed and then sell it themselves at like conventions or in, in uh, local stores and, and local communities. And that was like late seventies, early eighties when like that was sort of a thing before the big boys and, and big companies started really stepping in and dominating uh, like print productions. And this is like the days of white wolf and the, the, the original days of TSR and stuff like that. And then sort of that died off. And what this is doing is sort of taking that gate away that the, that independent creators would like for the last 20 some odd years, 30 odd years, 40 years. Wow. Time flies. Uh, where they'd have to pitch the idea and hope that, you know, somebody would pick it up or try to publish independently themselves via drive through RPG or DMs guild or Amazon or whatever other uh, avenue they had and hope that it got attention and hope that it, it, it did enough to sustain itself. Uh, and anybody who self-published, I mean, if I only knew somebody I could ask about that, uh, could tell you it's an arduous task and having to con- constantly hype your own work can be a little bit, uh, daunting soul destroying yeah but now with kickstarter starting to take up and game found and and all the and itch.io uh starting to really hit its stride with game found uh with game making and and giving creators the space and bandwidth to actually like get funding without having to pitch it to a big publisher you're starting to see all of that variety come out again and it's really refreshing so and to sort of move into the next one, the big darling of that one of the recent years is definitely Avatar The Last Airbender, uh, which has completely smashed all tabletop implications as far as Kickstarters go, uh, blowing that out of the water. We've talked about that a lot. We've had that interview with uh, with Brandon Conway. Uh, but now we are getting to a point where we're starting to get the emails where it's getting ready for being sent out to the Kickstarter, the Kickstarter backers. Uh, and now it is officially available for pre-order on their website. So if you missed the Kickstarter or didn't want to do it, uh, Magpie Games is now allowing you to pre-order the books, the core books uh, for Avatar The Last Airbender on their website, which I think is fascinating and scary because it means we're not too far away from having these things in our hands. And uh, it's always fun and always, always terrifying because <laughs> you always wonder. Uh, go ahead. We really need to get an avatar game going. We just, we absolutely need to do this because I'm really excited about this one, but, but I don't have people to play it with except y'all. Well, I think we're going to have to fix that. So if you're listening at home and you want us to do an avatar, the last airbender <laughs> uh, game session, you let us know and we'll, uh, we'll go ahead and make that happen. I may or may not have something written up for the, the time of Cora. We'll see. <laughs> but are you guys excited about them coming out as well? I have Dad. ideas. 
<laughs> a great many ideas. I actually would love to run a game um, in the time period that we see uh, in the distant, distant past where the first Avatar comes about. I would actually like to run a game in that time period. There's a lot of stuff there, I think. But yeah, it's. I was amazed. I was flat out amazed at this Kickstarter. Not not just because I mean I knew Avatar is a big popular property. I knew that it would they would easily succeed at their goal. I was not expecting them to take their goal out back and beat it like a pinata that owed them money. <laughs> but that's what happened. It's like it was unreal how how astonishing. Like I didn't think enough people knew about. TTRPGs to do this. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I just did not see it coming at all. So, yeah, I, I definitely, I'm looking forward to getting it. And, I, go ahead. I don't think anyone saw that coming. No, I was going to say, Brandon, when we had him on the show, was even like, they were blown away by the response. Like, they knew it was going to be, like, good. Like, the response was going to be positive, but they didn't think it was going to be that positive. So, like, yeah. <laughs> It's a, it's amazing what happens when you hit on the perfect storm of something that everybody wants more of and then giving them an infinite possibility of making it a tabletop role-playing game. Uh, one of the last news items that I wanted to cover really this week is that Desi's and Dragons is starting to get some international notice. Now, Desi's and Dragons is a uh, a group of folks that are basically in India and in South Asia uh, territories that are trying to make a concerted effort of bringing their cultures to the tabletop gaming space. And the reason that this is important, and Matt and I have talked about this on the other shows before, uh, and we've talked about it here as well representation of other cultures and tabletop role-playing spaces has not exactly been a great track record of positivity. Um, there's been a lot of sort of romanticizing, taking out of context, uh, stereotyping over the years, and it, it still happens today. So having folks that are involved uh, in creating content from the various world cultures and actually saying, no, this is what it's supposed to be, or this is how it actually is supposed to, to work. Here's how everything looks is important. And I'm happy that Desi's and Dragons is starting to get some international notice as they bring that, that, that South Asian and, and Indian culture to the forefront, which is something that I think has been largely ignored uh, over the, the many, many years. So I don't know if you guys have any opinions about any of that. I mean, I think both Liz and I are like, yes, that's a good thing. <laughs> and then we're like, is there something else we should be saying? I mean, what else do we say about it? It's yeah, a good is, thing to do. Yes. This is another one I was not familiar with. I'm just not, I don't have the pulse of the wider TTRPG space. So yes, all of these things are good. That's all I got. <laughs> I mean, I'm a, I, I have a little bit of a, a selfish inroad because uh, one of the, uh, the main creators for, uh, Desi's and Dragons happens to be a co-star on one of the shows I'm on. Uh, so, uh, Indrani, if you're listening, much love. Uh, I mean, we see that we've saw that with the Journeys to the Radiant Citadel book. Yeah, that there is an appetite for not just historical gaming, but gaming that touches upon you know other cultures that are not real well represented in stock Dungeons and Dragons, and actually uses them the same way that stock Dungeons and Dragons uses the Tolkien-inspired Western stuff. Um, and I think we've saw that in the past with, like, for instance, the, uh, the my favorite book of the past few years was the Theros book, mm -hmm. which it was Greek mythology inspired, but it wasn't literally Greece with, like, you know, it wasn't trying to replicate any historical or even mythical period. It used Greek and Greek mythology and Greek history the same way that you know your average D&D book used uh, Tolkienian western fantasy it used it as an inspiration and as as a 
this building blocks, but it didn't just toss real world stuff at you. And I think that Radiant Citadel showed that there is a lot of room for that. Uh, and I haven't seen Desi's and Dragons yet, but I think it's good to have it's good to have it done by people who have an actual connection to it, as opposed to when in the '80s when TSR at the time decided they were going to put out, and I'm it's my not my fault. This is the name of the book, guys. Oriental Adventures, and it was I mean there was some nice stuff in it, and at the same time there's a lot of stuff that you know that they only put in it because they saw a late night kung fu movie and thought that that was Japanese because everything's Japanese to them. You know what I'm saying? Like it's better now that we have people who actually have a real cultural connection making the, I think that is just generally a good thing. Yeah. Cause I mean, we've talked about it before. Representation does matter. Uh, another thing that does matter. And it's something that I wanted to bring up because it, it definitely affects at least a couple of us on the show. If not all of us is accessibility in the TTRPG space. Uh, that's another topic that's starting to get a lot of attention. Uh, with the gate being removed from content creation and it not having to go through like big publishers anymore, we're starting to see a lot of experimentation with the books and resources that are created. Uh, but one thing that seems to be, I don't want to say falling to the wayside, but maybe lacking consideration or maybe they don't have the tools to have somebody vet it is accessibility. Um, whether it is poor eyesight, uh, whether it is poor manual dexterity, uh, which is a thing that, that, you know, companies like Wizards of the Coast are starting to incorporate in their design philosophies, uh, whether it's colorblindness or, or anything else that could possibly ha- happen to somebody as far as like, whether it's a physical disability or, or a hurdle to overcome, some of that can be a barrier for entry into the TTRPG space. Uh, I do think it's something that it's important for us to start looking at, whether it is, um, and Matt, I don't want to like put you on the spot, but we've talked about your eyes before and how important it is for you to have digital tools that you can manipulate to accommodate your eyesight. Yeah. I mean, how much detail do you want me to go into here? Um, I mean, not gory detail, but if you want to talk about your experience with it, I would really appreciate it. What happened is back in 2016, I had a blood vessel pop in my eye. This was my left eye. Completely swamped out my left eye. Uh, Since then, uh, I have a condition called retinopathy where the retina, blood vessels in my retina are withering and popping. And as a result of this, my left eye is essentially no longer works. It's like a camera lens with Vaseline smeared on it. I get like between four and eight weeks at a time, I go in and get eye injections, which means my eyes have a cycle of working really well, not working as well, working very poorly. Okay. I've just got stabbed in both eyes. I don't, they don't work even a little. Okay. Now they're back up to full. And then it repeats as a result. I have converted almost entirely to PDF. Um, one of the cool things about working uh, for Blizzard Watch and for being on Tavern Watch is that I've gotten quite a few D&D books from uh, Wizards directly. They, they've sent them to me and I get to look at them and that's great, but it's also horrible because a printed book is the worst thing in the world for me right now. Uh, it's very hard for me to read the text in a printed D&D book because it's very small. They make it small in those books. Uh, one of the things I love about D&D Beyond is that all the books are there. And if you have the money to unlock them or someone like Liz is nice enough to like keep inviting you into their campaigns and then sharing (laughs) their library with you, you can end up having it all on your tablet and you can make it as big or as small as you want. Uh, Or companies like Paizo sell it in PDF format. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of PDFs and I can, again, adjust the size of the PDF so that when we're towards the part of the month where my eyes aren't doing great, um, I can make it bigger and then I can still read it. 
One of the problems with that, though, is that almost every book is produced either on white paper with black text or on really fancy colored paper that like trying to recreate a parchment look or make the layout weird to simulate a scroll or to simulate, you know, you know, the, the, the twisting mountain passages you're supposed to be climbing or what have you, you might as well just hit me in the face with that book for all I'm going to get out of it. If the book is, takes too much time and effort to read, I can't read it. And it's not a question of, of reading speed. It's not a question of vocabulary or reading context. It's that if I look at it long enough, I am going to have to go into a dark room, close the windows, turn off the lights, and cry for an hour because the pain is just too intense. Um, and I'm not the only person who has problems with their vision that cause that. Uh, lots of people do. And, and it, it, it comes down to, that's just one accessibility problem. There's also the accessibility problem of, with some products just being stratospherically priced. Uh, I'm going to point this one out. There's a, there's a game that I absolutely think is one of the most brilliant, innovative ideas they've had in years. Uh, it's by Monty Cook Games. It's called like Invisible Sun. Yep. Really interesting, really cool product. If you don't have $500, I don't know how you're going to play this game because it is expensive. It is, it is a lot of money. And role-playing games are, are a luxury hobby, and they always have been. But the price has shifted way up. Yeah, like to put in context, Invisible Sun is what, 100 bucks, give or take? I think it's like 150 for like the. In, oh, no, the I'm sorry. The, PD, the PDF version is $100. Oh, yeah. The PDF is 100 That's the, the actual book. It's even more. I don't even know what the full physical product is. But uh, I mean, and the other thing that I think I want to bring up here real quick, too, is also manual dexterity is an issue as well. Like Matt, Matt having his issues with his eyes, which. I think we can all sympathize with, even if we don't know it firsthand, like that, that's terrible, especially when a lot of TTRPG space is about reading or navigating books, but also like manual dexterity is a big thing as well. Some of these books get very, very big and are very, very heavy. Even the regular standard D&D book, right, at the $50 price point, because that's the standard price point for books right now, uh, or at least the, the uh, what is the expected hardcover price. Uh, and then you have to be able to hold that book, open it and manipulate it. And there are folks who can't, they don't have the manual dexterity or they, they lack the ability to do so. And things like having it as a, available as a PDF or an EPUB or something that they can put on a lighter uh, device, like a Kindle paperwhite, for example, uh, matters a lot or being able to mm -hmm. access like something like you said, D and D beyond that well, makes a big difference. Out, another thing to point out, um, Liz, you primarily have played D and D fifth edition, right? Yeah. Do you like how many hardcovers do you own or softcovers versus like electronic or through D and D Beyond type stuff? How how much of your collection is physical? Uh, maybe three books. And those three books are? Uh, I have Witchlight and Strixhaven, and I have Spelljammer. And do you yeah, have that's it. you got the core rule books, or do you get that online? I I don't. I don't have the core rule books. Okay. Now keep in mind that that means that Liz does not have to do a lot of physical manipulation. Mm -hmm. which is great. But also think about this. D&D puts their core rules into three books, which means that if you need access to what, to the rules in one of those books, you only need to physically manipulate that one book. The Exalted 3rd Edition has like a thousand pages in it. Yeah, it's a, that's it a is thick massive. book. I've yeah. got it on my bookshelf right now. I kickstarted this thing. It's as big as two of the previous editions of Exalted. If you put Exalted first and Exalted second on top of each other, Exalted third is bigger than that. 
Exalted Third is bigger than the entirety of, of the three prime D&D books. It's enormous. I want you to think about if you have physical problems holding up the Dungeon Master's Guide, how are you going to keep that thing open long enough to read through it? And, and then and then the layout inside is all fancy again. So now the visually impaired are also going, oh my God. Now That's this- a thing that we have to kind of worry about here. Yeah, and it's it's not that I want to harp on this. Is I think that there should be there's there's starting to be a bigger focus on accessibility in the TTRPG space, which I think is important, right? Yeah, and I, th- I think that it's absolutely not the case that we're saying don't have special editions, don't have big rule books. Just make sure there's an option for people. Like Paizo used to have the really small books, and those were kind of cool, but the fright the type in them was so small they were even worse for me. But I mean, this is the idea of have some other option for people. To to put it into perspective, like even like tabletop or uh, so to say, like yeah, we'll call them a tabletop giant. Like Games Workshop is even starting to acknowledge this fact, right? Where if you buy a brand new rule book or what they call a codices, in the codices is a digital code now where you can it, it basically input it through their application to unlock all of that content in a manipulatable a manipulatable form so that you can change. The background, maybe you can't do black text on white background, but you can do white text on a black background, uh, or you need to have it a larger font, or you need to have something like that. And it's not perfect. Uh, it, it, it absolutely is not perfect yet, but it's a step in the right direction. And so with the introduction of digital tools, with you know Avatar releasing their set of digital tools, with D&D, which we're probably going to talk about here in a moment, uh, moving into more digital tool sets as well, and really looking at that moving forward uh, with their acquisition of D&D Beyond, uh, and wanting to go into that table space, I think is going to ultimately, as long as they pay attention to it and pull the community, break down some barriers uh, so that people that have accessibility needs in the tabletop space can actually have them. And I think that that's good for everybody because my, one of my joys in life is sitting down at a table with a group of friends, whether it's a virtual table or a real table, and telling a story and having a good time. Uh, you can hear it when we're running games here. I'm usually laughing my butt off and just having a great time, even in the most stressful of situations, because that's what it's about. And breaking down the barrier that may be preventing somebody from experience, that is an important thing for me. So hopefully we see more of that moving forward. Hopefully we see more uh, independent creators take that into consideration as well uh, and start to really embrace the diversity of accessibility. Well, while we're on this topic, let me just throw this one up really quick, and then we can go on to talking about D&D. Have you guys, either of you heard about One More Multiverse? No. No. One More Multiverse is really fascinating. The one that they have out now is a, is a demo for their Blades in the Dark uh, program. And what it is, is like, imagine if oh, you yes! 20. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Imagine if like, you have to roll 20 with all the little maps and so forth, but it, it had a fully stocked pixel art where you could create your character in it with pixel art and move them around the map as if it were at a table that you were just at with minis, except it's this pixel art generated. It looks kind of like a really upscale Zelda game that you can play your D and D game in. And it's really kind of neat. It's really interesting. Uh, I just wanted to bring that up because it is something I've been looking at and something I've been messing around with that makes a lot of stuff. That's really hard for me as an impaired person trying to use roll 20 so much easier. It automates a lot of that stuff that's just maddening in Roll20. So I, I thought I should point that out. It's even coming to digital platforms as well. Uh, yeah, it so, looks like yeah. I think it's in beta right now. So yeah, that's definitely beta. something that's definitely something for us to, to pay attention to going forward. 
All right, but I'm going to stop talking because I've talked a whole lot, and I'm going to kick this over to Liz because Liz was <laughs> gracious enough to actually go through and start compiling a list of things that are coming in one D&D, as in particular it was the expert classes uh, and other changes in their latest playtest document. And if you didn't know, one D&D, which I will invariably call this D&D 1 before the end of this, don't worry, folks, <laughs> uh, is going to be the new eternal format for Dungeons & Dragons moving forward. D&D Series X. D&D Series X, you got it. So Liz, take it away. Uh, well, this is the second playtest document that we've gotten for one D&D. The first one was about races and origins, and this is starting us on classes. And I really think all of the class changes are pushing things in a positive direction and aimed at kind of fleshing out classes and particularly making the lower levels more interesting and varied and like i know a lot of the campaigns we've done have started at like level three and one of the reasons we do that is because classes are kind of boring and weak at lower levels and it does feel like they're trying to kind of um address that uh, but perhaps the biggest thing they've done is break classes into specific groups there are experts there are mages there are priests and there are warriors and each of the different groups, I, I really feel like this is kind of a gameplay design thing. It's They're grouped up so that they can, you know, at a later point, they can say, okay, this feat is for experts, or this weapon can be used by experts, whereas they currently do stuff like that on like a class-by-class -class basis or a race-by-race mm -hmm. -race basis, things like that. I'm actually seeing a lot of changes in the rules that are just kind of simplifying and codifying things that... Uh, just are going to make it easier long term to understand the rules without having to reference lots of things all at the same time. Uh, but anyway, this playtest document talks about uh, bards, rangers, and rogues who are all expert classes, and they all get expertise, which that is new. Previously, only rogues got expertise. Were there any other expertise classes? I think it's just rogues. Uh, rangers had something that was akin to expertise, but which was not actually called that. And so did druids had, I mean, not druids, bards had two things that combined acted like for expertise. And they've basically just called one of them expertise now. And uh, bards, yeah, bards, bards also had something like that as well. Yeah, bards had jack of all trades, which gave them half proficiency with well, literally they, everything. They also, yeah, but they, they also had the thing where you could pick two yes, things. Yes, you could actually you pick two expertise things. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they just anyway, worked it into the class. Yeah. Now, all of these classes have expertise. And they've all been uh, expanded. I don't. I don't want to have all the conversations about this. Are there anyone? Should I just go over the classes one at a time? Go for it. Okay. Well, then first up is Bard, and you'll find a lot of this is uh, familiar. But they've made some changes to Bardic Inspiration, which I think are really interesting and are going to make it more flexible and make it a core part of the class, which I think is great because this is such a an interesting part of the bard. It's something only the bard can do. So yeah, let's blow this out and make it a thing. One of them, you can give bardic inspiration as a reaction when another player does a d20 test. That's huge. Which, which is something Matt was actually trying to do in the game we played last week. It, it well, just... I was actually trying to use silvery barbs. No, you were trying to give bardic but inspiration as a reaction too at one point. But like, it's... Yeah. It's good though. It adds a, it adds an extra level of uh, uh, engagement, but also, I personally think that was always a bad uh, a, a bad thing about Bardic Inspiration is you had to preemptively assign it, and 
you only have so many of that resources, whereas baking it into a reaction just seems to be more natural, in my opinion. And uh, you can also add a Bardic Inspiration die to any heal done within 60 feet of you as a reaction. So that's kind of another way to use it. And if a player rolls a one on your Bardic Inspiration die, the use of Bardic Inspiration isn't expended. Um, then there are a couple of other things at later levels. At seventh level, uh, Bards get Bardic Inspiration uses back on a short rest, whereas right now they only get it back on a long rest. And way, way up at 18th level, Whenever a bard rolls initiative, they get back two uses of bardic inspiration. So That's in general, amazing. Yeah, I don't think a lot of campaigns go the, all the way up to level eighteen. But yeah, this makes the feature. It's more interactive at lower levels. There are more things you can do with it, and at higher levels, it keeps gaining power beyond just the dice going up. Also, by having the capstone be at eighteenth level. You can multi-class a little without losing the top end power. Yeah, which is a big thing. Because right now, multi-classing is very... It's one of those things where people do it because they know they're never going to get to level 20 anyway. Mm. But sometimes people are like, yeah, but if I do, we're not going to get that sweet level 20 benefit. And now, at least you don't have to worry about it as much. You can you can do take a two-level dip in something else and still basically be considered a full bard. And I think we we talked about it last week. The level 20 capstone, for I think, for all classes is uh, replaced with an epic boon uh, mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. opposed to that. So you still get a benefit from hitting level 20 should you go all the way in a single class. But it's, it's nice. It's good. Um, and they also, they're fleshing out bards as healers a little bit. You get something called Songs of Restoration, which at various levels, you get a selection of healing spells that are always prepared, including Healing Word, Lesser Restoration, Mass Healing Word, Freedom of Movement, and Greater Restoration. So it ma- so no matter what kind of bard you are, no matter what kind of spells you pick, you're always going to have some healing, which I think is good. It adds to the versatility of the bard, and versatility is... That's the bard's thing. Being yeah. able to do, being able to shift around between class roles. You're a healer. You're a melee damage dealer. You're a spellcaster. You're all three at once, and this will help with that. I mean, we talked about critical role earlier, mm-hmm. but it was really through watching critical role that I understood finally that the fifth edition bard is basically, oh, we don't have a wizard. Okay, yeah. I guess <laughs> I'm the wizard now. Yep. Um, you know, and that's something that by making it so you don't have to pick healing spells. You can take weird edge spells that you might never use, um, and thus they're there, and you still have the healing spells whenever you need them. Which I think it doesn't penalize you for taking the healing spells, which it, I think is a good choice. You still can only cast the so many spells, but you can have right. these ones just there when you need them. And that, that's Plus huge. the current Songs of Rest is pretty bad. Agreed. I think Songs of Rest right now is like what? Okay, roll an extra D. You know, whenever you you're you a D six on a on a rest. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, but I agree. Like, I think it's it's really uh, really good. I think it also is potentially going to diversify class structures a little bit more. Um, mm-hmm. We talked about uh, this a while ago. I think it was on our first episode. It might have been where we talked about the traditional party structure, and we've had several questions about it in the past. Where like a D and D party is almost invariably based around this old idea of the Holy Trinity of tank DPS and healer, right? You have a meat shield, you have somebody who keeps the meat shield alive, and then you have your damage dealers, which are glass cannons. The and pro- sometimes the fourth person is the person who opens locks and checks for traps. Yes. Um, but I, I qualify them in the glass cannon because usually rogues can't take a hit. Ask me how I know this when I almost died from one, <laughs> one attack on, on last Sunday. Anyway, um, the, 
the problem that you run into is that you tend to have people that always feel like compelled to have a certain number of certain classes in a party where, oh, we have to have a cleric or we have to have a druid or we have to have a fighter. Uh, but opening up sort of that diversification for the bard eliminates that need it's like, okay, well, the bard can heal if necessary, but can still focus on doing whatever else they wanted to do. They could be that rogue type. They could be that frontline fighter type if they wanted to. They could be uh, the magic dealing sorcerer or wizard if they want to. And then if everything goes sideways, they can still go ahead and cast some healing spells. It means that a class that was largely overlooked, I think, and often maligned, the bard, now starts to look a lot more attractive to party structure because no longer do you need to have a cleric of the life domain or, you know, or a wizard or a sorcerer because now you have options. And I think that's just healthier for the game overall because we often say, or at least in my group, we say, play what you want to play. Don't worry about, you know, the structure, but almost invariably people worry about the structure. So overall, good. And one of the things about this is that, you know, some classes have a list of spells and every day they prepare what spells they want to be able to use. But bards are not one of those classes and bards still aren't one of those classes in this new playtest material. They pick their spells and those are the spells they know. So basically, if you wanted to have healing, you had to pick that spell and that was the spell you always knew. And now you'll just always know it for when you need it. So, yes, that is excellent. Uh, does anyone else have bard stuff to talk about? I mean, I'm just waiting to see when Millicent starts to to incorporate some of this stuff into it. And, uh, then, uh, Matt just goes <laughs> all sorts of crazy and takes over as the, the de facto leader of the party. Cause it's going to happen. I'm the leader of the party now. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Then we will go on to Rangers and, uh, I'm pretty hyped about the Ranger mm-hmm, class. Mm-hmm. Well, I think this is the glow up of this rule thing uh this this playtest document this the bar the ranger is the glow up in my opinion i think they've done a lot of good things to bard and of this group the rogue is the least touched uh but yes rangers i feel rangers have the problem it's like you go in okay i cast hunter's mark and then i shoot something i cast hunter's mark and then i shoot something and that's like the entire class um so it kind of it needed a little something uh, one of the big things is that they now gain spellcasting at level one. Mm. It used to be you had to wait to level two to get spellcasting. Now you'll get that immediately. And that's kind of why I feel that uh, 1D&D is adding more for lower level characters. Because you have to wait until two to get such a core feature of your class. But now you get it immediately. Uh, and Hunter's Mark, this is a really big one. Kind of Hunter's Mark has been integrated into the class in a big way. It used to be a spell that you, one, you had to choose the spell, and two, you had to concentrate on the spell, which really limited your options. Now you will always have Hunter's Mark prepared, and when you cast it on something, it does not require concentration, which opens up a whole world of possibilities of other spells you can cast, other concentration spells you can use. Because a lot of ranger spells are concentration. Um, also, of another two other big benefits to that. Do you Go. want me to say, okay. First of the two big benefits is that you can, as, as <clears throat> it's actually, that's the third one. Liz Bordy pointed that one out, that you can use other concentration <laughs> spells. But the second one is hitting a ranger does not do anything to their hunter's mark. They don't have to make a concentration check. Not true. So if you are a ranger and you put hunter's mark on something, it is not coming off unless you go down. 
You don't have to worry that, oh, I got hit in the arm for damage, but I rolled really terrible in my concentration check, so there goes my Hunter's Mark. I guess I'll have to recast it and use, you know, that's not happening. Secondly, and also huge about this, is you don't have to prepare Hunter's Mark. It's always there. You always have it, even at level one. And you can cast spells at level one now. So your level one ranger automatically has Hunter's Mark and can automatically cast it. This is a huge boost to damage for a first level ranger. It's an extra D6 of damage when many things you fight probably have eight hit points. (laughs) And you probably only have ten. This is a big deal. It's actually much stronger than it seems at, at first glance. Because it practically doubles your damage output at level. And doubling your damage output at level one is a big way to keeping you alive until level two. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's we're going to see a lot stronger characters at the, those low levels just throughout this so far. I mean, I'm curious to see what else they do with the other classes, but I, yeah, this is an interesting thing we're going towards. I also think this has a bid to do with making more classes viable and sort of further the diversification because Matt and I have talked about this before. Uh, it's you, you like barbarians at first level have like a ridiculous damage output. Fighters at first level have a ridiculous damage output. And so you're almost invariably going to see one of them because they don't rely on class features as much as some of the others. Mm-hmm. Um, they can basically just do a whole lot more at first level. Same thing with like clerics, right? Like a, a cleric of the war domain can put out a ton of damage because it already has a whole bunch of like special features at first level. When you're starting to talk about lower levels here with like the ranger class, rangers were a class that, and and we talked about this before Liz decided to play one in the, uh, the Weir's game. It often gets overlooked by a lot of players because it's not generally strong, until later levels and even then only in specific scenarios versus what they're trying to do now, which is give you more options, make the class more attractive at lower levels and sort of try to bring it up to par with everyone else. When Matt says this is sort of the glow up of the the rules uh, sort of update, he's not wrong, right? Like Rangers tended to get the, the least amount of stuff unless you picked a very specific subclass and even then was overshadowed by a lot of other classes and a lot of other subclasses. So I'm excited right, for this. Let's talk about for a second the Liz's classes. The Liz's subclass is a ranger. Uh, you went with the the uh, dragon rider, right? Is it called dragon rider? I can remember what it's called. Dragon warden? It's not called Dr- Drake Warden. Drake Warden. Drake Warden, yeah. Which is a character added in Fizban's Treasury of Dragons. Mm-hmm. And the Drake Warden does a lot to fix problems that the Beast Stalker had in that they're, they're basically their pet was getting wiped out and just wasn't very useful in battle. Uh, I think that the the Drake Warden, its mechanics are very good in that way. Um, but it's one of the few Ranger subclasses that had a lot of overall all-around all power that they could use. Them and the Gloomstalker and a couple others. Uh, the Swarmkeeper, if you're really into swarms of things. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I feel like the changes we're seeing where you get spellcasting, where the the various class features that are just straight up class features, like roving and and tireless, are just better. They're the ones from they're one from uh, Tasha's cauldron, and they're yeah, just I, plain better. Go ahead, I, I'll stop as you can talk. <laughs> um, yes, I mean those don't currently exist in the base rogue. There are two features from Tasha's cauldron of everything that were really strong and did at least some things to address kind of the weaker elements of the rogue. 
And that was roving, which is currently now part of the base rogue class at Ranger. seventh level. You said rogue three times. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Ranger. We're talking about Rangers, not the other class that starts with the letter R. Um, <laughs> roving gives you plus 10 walk speed, as well as a climb and swim speed equal to your walk speed, which is... You know, I don't know how often that's going to come up, but that is something that's going to be useful. It surprisingly comes up a lot in the pre-generated, like, campaign stuff. Like, if you go back and look at, like, um, Salt Marsh or even some of the stuff that's coming out now with, uh, like, the the Radiant Citadels and some of the stuff in the the Spelljammer stuff, walk speed, climb speed, and swim speed matter a lot. And having a swim speed and climb speed does make a big difference and giving that to rangers is huge because it gives them the mobility that you would have expected from a scout type class mm-hmm. where yeah. they didn't have it previously huge absolutely huge yeah and i the correct me if i'm wrong having an actual climb speed on your character means that if you're going to climb something you don't have to make a check you just have a climb speed would you correct. all say that's correct yeah, uh, yeah. unless unless the terrain is considered difficult or dangerous yeah you don't make you don't have to make a check if you have a climb speed and the other feature from Tasha's Cauldron of Everything that's being added into the base rogue is tireless. This, after any time you take a rest, you give it, you gain a certain amount of temporary hit points, so you're a little, a little beefier after your rest. And it also removes one level of exhaustion after a short rest. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, these two things really fit in with the rogue. Ranger. <laughs> with the ranger. <laughs> Why couldn't and they have I, named him the the, the the ranger and the thief, or the see, rogue and the hunter? Just, just I, break it up a little, guys. I was just right there thinking that Joe mentioned scouts, and it's actually rogue that has a scout subclass, not ranger. So I'm getting everything confused in my head right now. But yes, these are really strong features that flesh out the ranger. It also leans heavier uh, into the Tolkien esque uh, the Tolkien esque fantasy of it, which. Uh, sort of kind of got lost along the way. Like, this is a return to force of the Ranger back with, I mean, Matt can correct me if I'm wrong, but this feels a lot like some of the kits that were available in AD&D. It's a very second edition feel uh, yeah. for the class. I, I would I would go along with that. Uh, then at 13th level, Nature's Veil, which lets you expend a spell slot to become invisible until the end of your next turn as a bonus action. Uh, so this, yeah, this is another really cool thing. It's going to let you sneak around more, position yourself advantageously, get some attacks out without being in danger. It also, um, it's also hmm. really useful um, comparing it to what it's replacing. I believe that what it's replacing is like hide in plain sight where you have to make a check, but you can make that check like anywhere. And you can just like, I can stealth even though I'm standing in a tree and everyone can see me. I can just become stealthy. This is like straight up. You're just invisible. Yep. And it's because it's you're just invisible. Boom. It, it's much simpler and it makes a lot more sense. It doesn't seem ridiculous, uh, which I think uh, is important. The current, yes, current feature is hide in plain sight at 10th level, which says you can spend one minute creating camouflage for yourself. You must have access to fresh mud, dirt, plants, suit, and other naturally occurring materials with which to come to create your camouflage. Once you are camouflaged in this way, you can try to hide by pressing yourself up against a solid surface, such as a tree or wall that is at least as tall and wide as you are. You gain plus 10 bonus to dexterity checks as long as you remain there without moving or taking actions. So 
that's pretty limited. That's a pretty yeah. limited utility there. It's pretty, quite frankly, it's pretty bad. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. When are you going to, when would you ever use this? I'm going to hide against this wall, maybe to like uh, overhear things, but it's very, it's, it's very Assassin's it's Creed sneaking into a building thing where you just hide up against the wall until the patrol leaves and then, okay, they're gone. Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> or, I, I definitely think that that's, that's a much bigger benefit. For instance, one of the things that Nature's Veil would allow you to do is if you say, let's say you multiclassed into Rogue, since we've been saying Rogue a lot anyway. Oh, God. Um, but if you multiclass into Rogue, you could use Nature's Veil and then immediately get advantage on your next attack. Oh, yeah. Which would give you a sneak attack damage on it. Like, there's a lot of functionality to this. It's, it's interesting and dynamic gameplay essentially being added back into the class, which is, I'm always here for it, too. And again... It just reads as I'm going through this this document and everything that Liz has bullet pointed out for it. It just reads as a we realize people didn't play this class. We want to remember how awesome it was. Here you go, because it's it is a return to force. But I think maybe we should move on to the rogue since we keep saying rogue. <laughs> well, I do want to mention one more thing at level 15. Feral senses gives them blind sight to 30 feet. Which oh, is, yeah, that's like. That's incredible. That's incredible. That's way up there on the levels, but that's that's an amazing one. Yeah, no other you, class yeah. gets something like that. Your enemy gets goes invisible? Oh, tough for him. I know exactly where he is. He doesn't get <laughs> I don't get disadvantage on my attacks. Yeah. I, I will point out um one thing in your document you you mentioned that favorite enemy is still there. Mm -hmm. The hunter's mark thing is favorite enemy. Yeah. That's what okay. it is. So favorite enemy still exists, and what it does is it gives you hunter's mark. Uh, you know, without having to learn it and without having to concentrate on it. It also means that you don't have to define uh, what the, the favorite enemy is anymore. Like you used to have to. Yeah. So it's just whatever you've got yeah. Hunter's mark on. Yep. Yeah. Favored, favored enemy was always kind of weird. It's like, okay, your favorite enemy is like dragons or abominations. And then so now you, you get, get a survival check bonus when you're trying to yeah. figure out what that, what that dragon's going to do. It's going to breathe fire on us. We don't need you to make a survival <laughs> check. Shoot. Yeah, it was, it was such a weak bonus, and now it's been replaced with the Hunter's Mark thing. Yeah, and, and uh, it's returning back to like in back in the second edition. Uh, Hunter, like favorite enemy, used to actually give you like bonuses to hit and bonuses to damage and a whole bunch of other stuff. And baking Hunter's Mark into it just makes more sense because now it makes you more versatile in that fact. Like you're not going to just name, oh, my favorite enemy is goblins because they stole my bread when I was a kid, uh, you know, and then you never encounter a goblin. Yeah. So that's just a useless skill versus yeah, your favorite enemy is whatever sucker is in front of you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let us in fact go to rogues, at which point I will probably start saying ranger over I'm, and over. I'm waiting. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, rogues have definitely gotten the fewest changes of this. Um, and and not all of the, you know, just rogues were a pretty strong class. The only issue I would have with a rogue is that they fall into that trap where, okay, every turn I'm doing the same thing. I'm going to attack. I'm going to get sneak attack damage. And that's, that's kind of the big thing. Mm -hmm. And I don't, this has not really addressed that. Maybe rogues didn't need to address that, but one of the reasons I don't, like, I'm not in love with rogues is because you don't have a lot of gameplay choices. You go in, you stab something, or you hit them with a crossbow bolt, and that's kind of, that's your thing. That's all you do. Um, so let's see. Uh, one thing, they have evasion has moved up a couple of levels from 7th to 9th. Which is really uh, good. They, 
They get subtle strikes at 13th level, which gives them advantage on any attack roll that targets a creature within five feet of one of your allies. So that kind of feels like it expands on sneak attack, where you can currently get sneak attack damage on an enemy as long as they're engaged with one of your allies within five feet. Now, this, so, is, this is codifying an optional rule that's currently in the rulebook, by the way. So ah, okay. So, so in the current version of fifth edition, if you are flanking or within five feet of an ally, like an enemy is within five feet of an ally and, and so are you, you get advantage on an attack roll, but it is an optional rule. It is not codified. This is codifying it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, specifically for the rogue uh, at 14th level, they'll be able at 14th level, their blind sensibility has been removed and uh, that used to. It was one that will let you locate invisible creatures within 10 feet of you automatically, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, that's a little weak. And what if you're like a ranged rogue that relies on crossbows? That's just, that's that's not doing much for you. Now, yeah, compared at, to the super great version of it that the ranger just got, that would have been really not great anyway. Uh, Yeah, that's really weak. Now at 14th level, they just get a subclass feature. And we don't know too much about subclasses yet, but hopefully that means they'll get something more useful and relevant. The interesting thing, though, is it also opens up for you to take a feat a previous level beforehand because, uh, what is it? You get your subclass feature at 14th, two levels beforehand because you get a 13th with subtle subtle strikes. But at 12th, you get a feat. And if they have a blind fighting feat, you can now just take that feat if that's what you want your rogue to do versus, you know, just waiting on a terrible version of blind fighting. <laughs> yeah, rogues rogues get a bunch of feats, too. They get them at 4th, 8th, 10th, 12th, yeah, 16th, and 19th. I think everyone gets a feat at 19th. Yeah, don't, they but, have, uh, like, don't they have six in total, I think? I think it is six. In- yeah. One, two. Yes, six be- in total. Six in total. Yeah, which, yeah. Is, which is more than everyone else gets. Yeah. So, um. Then at 15th, they get something called Slippery Mind. That's something they already have that gives them proficiency in wisdom saves. Now it also gives them proficiency in charisma saves. This is another one. I'm not sure how big this will be. Surprise, surprisingly relevant, actually. So one of the, the worst things as a DM and, a, and as a player is having charm effects. Because charm effects mm-hmm. will either go against wisdom or charisma. And on traditional physical fighters uh, like fighters like barbarians and rogues fall into that category because they tend to be more uh, dexterity or intellect based Um, wisdom and charisma tend to suffer in those classes. And so if you're throwing a mind flare at somebody uh, they're going to be saving against their wisdom and charisma. And there is nothing less fun than losing control of your character for an extended period of time, because you have no chance of succeeding at the saving throw, even if it's a modest saving throw. So to compare that to if your DM is throwing a rogue monster or, or rogue at his party and the, you know, bard just manages to get a good roll and you just can't beat their save. You know, now you're, you know, you know, homicidal maniac killer who was supposed to be the end boss of this dungeon is best buddies with Gonthar. Now, <laughs> now there's, there's ways around that, obviously, currently in the game yeah, with legendary absolutely. resistance and stuff like that. But all that stuff's there, but it can still be quite annoying. Yeah. So this gives you a little more agency as far as like a, a, a rogue goes where you're not necessarily going to be taken out of the fight because this is why I classified rogues as like a glass cannon is because rogues and fighters, if you can do something to put them to sleep or take them out of combat or hold person them, 
you can or cast maze on them or cast maze on them uh completely uh nullifies their effectiveness as far as like what they contribute to the party and can actually remove a player from the game for an extended period of time. And there's nothing worse than sitting at that table while everybody else does everything. And you have to hope you roll a natural 20. And while it is a 5% chance, it feels bad. So this makes it a little bit better. And I would not be surprised if other classes start getting little tiny bits like this or feats are made available that do specifically this to give players the option to sort of beef up their characters. There's a feat that already does that. One feat. There's one feat Uh, that does it currently. No, no, no. You can take the Reliant feat uh, for any stat. But you have to specifically choose one, not two. Yes, not one, not two. But it's still, there is a feat necessary for it. So there is something there already, but this is nice because then you don't have to use that feat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, And then capping off, you've got two abilities that have been moved down. Uh, Now at 17th level, you get Elusive, which means no one... No one can get advantage against you. And at 18th level, this was previously at 20 level, 20th, you get stroke of luck, which means if you fail a D20 test, you can now treat the roll as a 20. So you can do that once per rest. So if you really just can't get through that, you know, charm spell, <laughs> even though yeah. you've got proficiency, you still can't make it. Yeah, burn stroke of luck so that way you're not, you know, using sneak attacks on your friends. And that really plays into the whole rogue being the tricksy fighter thing. So I'm kind of here for it. Uh, so, yeah, that just brings these are still really high levels, but it's a little lower than it was a little lower that you're going to hit that power level, which I I think is a good thing. Uh, and there's some other stuff like we're going to because we're running a little long on time here. Overall, these three classes feel like much more mature versions of the current ones we see, which is exactly what we'd expect and makes me feel really hopeful for all the other classes moving forward. Uh, but seeing the expert classes or like sort of get a little love and attention, especially because these are three classes that don't get a lot of play. Like in, that sounds weird to say, but like most parties that I've experienced in real life don't generally have a rogue or almost never have a ranger. Yeah, bards, very, I think, are the most common of the three. And even they're very, yeah. like, you've very specific bards get picked if they're going to get picked. Like, so this seems like flushing that out is just a good thing. Um, do we want to go over some? Uh, go ahead. One thing I think is really interesting is the playtest document under this list of classes, it mentioned that the artificer is an expert, but it didn't include it in the list and it didn't include it in this playtest document. So that's interesting. I wonder if the Artificer is going to continue as kind of like an odd class out that maybe won't always be available or maybe be in a separate book or something like it is now. Or maybe yeah. they're they're just going to rework it from the ground up. Because one thing that I will note about artific- Artificers is they have a lot of overlap. They don't, mm-hmm. they don't generally feel insanely unique. Um, they can, if you build them right, but for the most part, they're doing that same thing that bards used to do where they're just, you build them a specific way to fill a specific role. So I wouldn't be surprised if they're included in the expert classes, maybe it isn't another book, or maybe they're just reworking it from the ground up to make it feel more unique. Yeah. They're another hybrid class. Yeah. They're like a hybrid cast class that gets the disadvantage of being a half caster. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. And they don't really get any of the benefit of some other half casters like the Ranger or the Paladin, both of whom are half casters, but especially now the Ranger changes and the current Paladin both have a lot else going on for them. Now, you know, playing a Paladin, 
you don't feel bad that you're a half caster, but the artificer, a lot of times you feel like I can't really do as much as I feel like I should be able to do. Right. Because I mean, think I about mean, it. Like you have, you have the, the, the artillerist, right? Which is, I have mm-hmm. a gun fighters do that better. Uh, you have the Aegis uh, defender, which is, I am a tank where barbarians do that better. Like it's, it's very much suffering from the hybrid tax is the way ah. that I would put it. They have some strengths. Liz has opinions, but I, I love artificers. I think they oh, I think are they're great. Fun. Yeah. yeah. They have like access to an interesting spell list. They have proficiency in thieves tools. Yep. And, um, you know, I, I mean, I played a, an artificer a little bit that had a mechanical like dog companion that it's like because gnomes are small, you could like ride the dog companion. And that was really awesome. That's that's not in the rules. But I had a DM at one point that let me do that. And it's like, I feel really amazing riding this mechanical dog into battle. I just, I love artificers. Maybe they could use some upgrades, but I'm really into it. I DM'd a campaign where we had an artificer minotaur Mm -hmm. who had a, I'm trying to think of the the right name for the animal, an aurochs, a mechanical aurochs companion that he, I let him ride on. (laughs) Yeah. But I would like mechanical, you know, so the, uh, I'm not saying that, that artificers are bad. I'm saying that in my opinion, I feel like they could use a revamp in terms of the the spell list they get. I don't see why they can't be a full caster. I would agree. And and also like, I think they're another, uh, if they were to be something that becomes available later and not in the core book, like they become available in another supplement, I'd like to see them come along with a more fleshed out kit, but also, and I was going to throw this in there. I've always sort of equated artificers with my other favorite class that unfortunately has not existed outside of a single book in fourth edition which is uh, it's going to surprise nobody who knows me was the shaman, uh, w- <laughs> which was another hybrid class that sort of didn't do nearly as much as a druid and didn't do nearly as much as a cleric and sort of, they just did those jobs better. I wouldn't mind seeing some of the more esoteric or weird classes uh, getting some attention and love and then being released. Cause I would love to see some of those older classes that maybe were in fourth edition, get breathed lo- some new life into for yeah, like one the warlock D&D. came along, but why didn't we get the warlord? Yeah. Like the war, like we got the battle master, but it wasn't quite the same. No, it's better in some ways, but it's not the, what the warlord did. Yeah. So, yeah. And um, go ahead. Go ahead. Liz. You go on. I was going on to a different topic, so continue. I was just going to say, I think we should move on to the the, the remaining <laughs> stuff real quick, because we are, we are running out of time. Um, One thing, a big change from the last playtest content is about D20 tests. Uh, the first one D&D playtest content had D20 tests. If you roll a natural one, you fail. If you roll a natural 20, you succeed. That was not super popular, so they walked back on that. D20 tests work the way they always have. The DM decides decides the check, and you roll, and you meet it, or you don't meet it. So I think a lot of people are going to be happy about that, including you two. Oh, 100%. Yeah, I think (laughs) I I don't necessarily mind so much the idea of letting it succeed on a 20 because I think that they are right that you shouldn't ask for a test if you are unwilling to allow it to succeed. Mm -hmm. Like if the player says, I'm going to seduce that dragon. I'm like, no, you can't roll that check. There's no way this dragon finds you attractive. You are barely paramecium to this dragon. 
<laughs> it's just not going to go for it. Other dragons, maybe. This one, no. So if I let you roll the check, then there should be a chance you succeeded. But I don't like the idea that Master Swordsman Elanzor rolled a one and dropped this sword. Yeah, agreed. The dude has been doing this for 500 years. He should know how to keep his hand on the sword. I'm sorry. So yeah, I, I don't I Although, don't like that original rule. But I do like what the, the thing they kept. Though. Yes. I was just going to say the same thing. I'm really happy about that. Keeping the gaining of an inspiration if you roll a one. I think that's a great, it's a great uh, bonus prize or a uh, door prize. Yeah. Yeah. So. I mean, you, you, you screwed up. You rolled a one. You missed. You hit the wall. But at I'm least you're like, oh, I'm really going to stab you now. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, rolling one is so disappointing. It, I mean, it just feels bad. But this, this gives you a little extra oomph, and it makes it feel less bad. It's like, okay, this was bad, but next time I'm going to really do better. It's going to be good. And uh, kind of the last, did you have something? No, 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 okay. please. The, the last thing in the playtest document that I noticed was there are some new actions listed. And it's not so much things you couldn't do before, but it's setting rules down to certain things like one of them is influence which of course you could always do a persuade check to influence someone but this kind of really sets down rules for it uh in the playtest it says with the influence action you can try to influence another creature to do something you request or demand this action can be used only on creatures controlled by the dm and it isn't mind control can't force a creature to do something that is counter to the creature's alignment or is otherwise repugnant to the creature and it's it just sets down some rules for it. Like, okay, are is the creature indifferent to you? Is the creature friends with you? Is the creature hostile to you? And set kind of different levels that you have to roll in order to make a check succeed or fail. And uh, I think this is great, actually. It sets down some rules for more social things in D&D, which is something it's always lacked. D&D is very combat-focused in its rules. So I think if you're a new DM or you aren't used to running social situations, you could hit checks like this and just not know what to do because there aren't any rules for it. You're you're making it up as you go along. And now there are several, several actions in the player's handbook like this. Uh, another one I noticed was study. Yes. Which is basically you're trying to remember something or and uh, come up with an important piece of information about it. And uh, it gives you a list of, okay, maybe for this kind of information, you could do this this check and this check and list some DCs for different things. And it's like, yeah, this is great. This is going to make it easier to play social games and give you some rules straight up that you know that you can follow and you don't have to make it up as you go along. Uh, which I'm really happy about, right? Because like a lot of this seems to be borrowing from other systems. I think Paizo has something like this already. Um, mm. But also like Blades in the Dark is a big one. Uh, Blaze in the Dark has uh, the sway action, which is, you know, trying to get somebody to do something that you want them to do that, you know, maybe they don't want to. And but it gives Come on, a man, just just tell me where he went. Yeah, that sort of thing. Sort of thing. Um, and D&D always sort of had an element of that, but it was never codified. So having something in there that codifies that as a check, uh, I think is actually really, really good, especially for newer DMs or players that are just getting into the game. And this is going to be the set of rules that sort of they go through and, and memorize. Same thing with study. We've always, I know Matt and I have always done this um, where it's 
the player Just doesn't know this. it, but the character yeah. does, right? So roll a wisdom check or roll an intelligence check or something like that to, you know, see if the memory jumps out at you or leaps up out at you. Um, if you notice when Matt's running the weirs or I'm running the weirs, we'll work that in with like, we tend to use like history and arcana and stuff like that to sort of fill those roles to kind of keep you guys moving along um, so that you don't get stymied uh, by like the fact that we mentioned this in episode one and it's been 26 episodes now. Right. <laughs> so having something like that to remind folks, yes, as a DM, your job is to help facilitate the story moving along yeah, versus there's literally nothing more frustrating than the entire party standing mm -hmm. around, not knowing what to do because they don't have a piece of information that somebody should have, but nobody can roll above a four. Yep. <laughs> you know, and having a like actual, the thing about the study thing that I find interesting is that you, you get to take, you take time, you're studying the thing. So you'll get to call to mind an important piece of information. You'll get a specific important piece of information. It's not just if someone makes that check, you don't just throw any random piece of information at them. You give them the plot critical information that they need that they're yeah. there for. So like, yeah. Like right now, I'm I'm in the one of the the games that I'm playing in, and which is a witch light game, by the way. I'm playing uh, an inquisitive rogue, right? I'm not a combat oriented rogue. I'm very much I, I'm a nerd. Like that's that's the character's whole thing. He's wants to be Sherlock Holmes. He wants to be an acquisition specialist. So murdering isn't his thing, right? But uh, shout outs to uh, Amir, who my DM. He, you know, does that where my character would know random things because that's what the character did. Like, I'm from Strixhaven. I've spent my entire life uh, studying books and studying the multiverse. So, like, my character is the inroad for random information drop to help the party move along. And so, like, we will do stuff where, like, it's codified, where I've studied this before. I've studied this potentially. It's how, like, in the last game, we got jumped by a pair of Wendigos. And I knew, wow, we got to run the heck away. Uh, <laughs> instead of, like, oh, I'm just going to fight this thing or we're going to fight. No, it's like, no, we need to go. Let's get, like, little things like that. And it helps a party feel more fleshed out and also helps a character feel, in my opinion, uh, a little bit deeper. Right. It, it turns you away from just a bunch of murder PCs to having death. Was your character a scholar, uh, which is a background that has existed, but never really did anything. Or if you're an alkalite, uh, it just gave you access to divine stuff versus maybe you're an alkalite of Ogma, which is a god of magic and knowledge. And you're just going to go through and maybe you've read this book somewhere or maybe you went from the, the library plane that, that, it, that there is, a, that it does exist actually. Maybe uh, you're hosting some kind of podcast about role in, in, in various games. And you suddenly remember yep. something that you were talking about 10 episodes before, and you have a 20 minute riff session. These things happen. <laughs> all to say that it's really, really good. And it's nice to see them codifying this stuff. So I'm really excited about that. Um, this is probably the most excited I've been with with new playtest stuff in a while. <laughs> and it feels like it fits in with the theme of some of their recent books, which have had kind of a twist away from the pure combat. I'm going to kill everything in front of me. And that's the whole point of this adventure. Like Witchlight, like Strixhaven. Mm -hmm. Because these are a lot more about exploration and social situations. And Witchlight in particular, you could go through Witchlight without killing anything. Or at, without attacking anything, if you, you know, if you really worked at it. And so, yes, having rules like this is going to make it easier for DMs. It's going to make it easier for players to come up to understand what's going on. 
And it makes D&D more than a combat game, which I think is fantastic. I mean, all in all, it just seems like everything is just going to be uh, much better. It's, it seems like it's being more player focused, which we know from talking with Greg, and you can go back to some of our previous episodes, they absolutely are trying to do. Uh, we can see that that's a shift that they've been trying to do in the recent books. And I think codifying it into the core rules uh, just makes it so much better as opposed to, and, we, and I believe Matt's brought this up before, Liz, I know has mentioned it, uh, having to buy extra books to get things that should be core rules feels bad uh, versus having them as part of like the core book when they tell you that this is all you need to play the game feels better. So uh, I don't know if there's anything else to add to that. Your final thoughts, like, with us seeing how when D and D has been going, how are how do you think it the playtesting is going? They're they're very clearly listening to their player base, but do you think that this is all starting to be positive? Uh, is there something you hope we see in the future? And I'll start with Liz. I think this is really positive because they're bringing up player power level, not to make things overpowered, but to bring up some of the classes that are a little less powerful. And they're doing it at the low level. Yes, they're trying to make the game more fun and interactive at lower levels because that's definitely one of the weaknesses right now that, you know, if you're level one, you are super weak. You could be killed with a single attack if the DM gets a really good roll. And, you know, now you have more options. You have more things you can do. And I just, I really like what I, what I see about how they're kind of maybe normalizing player power levels. They're giving us more at lower levels. It just seems you know, genuinely more fun. It seems like things are, everyone's going to be more fleshed out, at least based on these three classes. One thing I do want to see how D&D handles this is subclasses, because right now a lot of that low-level power disparity is because some classes get their subclass at level one, and some classes have to wait until level three. Yeah. And this in this playtest, we got three classes that all re- that got their subclass at level three, and that's how they were. That's how they are in fifth edition, and that's how they are in the one D and D playtest material. So I'm curious when we get into those classes that have subclasses at different levels, are they still going to be at different levels? Are are we going to normalize where everything is at level three? Are are we going to try and give classes that don't get their subclasses until a little later? and normalize the power level to give them a little more at those lower levels so they don't feel really weak when you start out. All right, Matt, what about you? More barbarians. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody saw that coming. (laughs) No, it was was mysterious. What would he say? No, I I like what I saw so far. I'm I'm glad that the ranger feels more fleshed out, like they get their spells at first level. I don't think any class that has spells shouldn't get their spells at first level. Subclasses is a different story, but for classes, if it is a class feature that you have spells, you should get those spells at first level. Agreed. Um, I just, and also for that matter, I'm kind of not a fan of half casting in general because it always ends up basically being an afterthought. Uh, I think that the way they're doing the ranger here is, is pretty good, but if the bard can be a full caster and it is, despite also basically being everything else too, I feel like rangers and paladins could be full casters I, and, and, and artificers. I just, I think in general, it is the one thing I would like to see change the most, which I don't think I'm going to get. 
that that's it for me. Yeah, for me, I'm enjoying what we're seeing from the what seems like a natural evolution of a lot of these classes. A lot of this, and, and I've mentioned this before, but this just continues to reaffirm it. It feels like a lot of stuff that players were homebrewing already uh, and stuff that you saw being released on, particularly like DMs Guild or DriveThruRPG as supplements uh, that like individual creators were putting out there that were doing a lot of these same things. Uh, and I'm not saying that, you know, Wizards is stealing those ideas, but I think it's just looking at it and saying, here's where a need for players is being filled. And here's a lot of really, you know, good ideas or things we should have been doing. A D&D fifth edition is a, a product of a different playtest time, uh, a time where people were really hard swinging back against fourth edition. And so as a result, it reverted back to, and I think Matt and I talked about this when, uh, D&D Next was first released, and it, it, it was before we were ever doing the, the podcasting stuff together, um, but like just as a, a random off conversation of D&D Next felt a lot like it was trying to go hard back to second edition. And then yeah. what, what came out for fifth, what, fifth edition was like a hybrid between second edition and 3.5. Like it had a lot of the design ideas from both, uh, and unfortunately, some of those design ideas were outdated at this point. Uh, whereas like Paizo was already forging ahead with Pathfinder uh, and basically making a better game at the time. And now it's like they finally taking stock of everything that they've created and a lot of the stuff that they've been incorporating into newer design philosophies in like Tasha's or in Morden Canyon's uh, multiverse or in Fizzbands and a lot of these books that have some really amazing and good content and saying, no, we just need to make this part of the core grouping. And I think that's really, really good. As far as what I'm looking forward to seeing, I am looking forward to seeing what they do with more of the hybrid classes. Um, hybrid classes have always been like a personal favorite of mine in D&D. I think that they are, tend to be a lot more fun for my personal type of play style uh, because they can be very, very quirky. They can fill a lot of roles. Um, and they tend to be mysterious um, and something that is like, going back to the shaman, one of my all time favorite classes that they put in the, in fourth edition. Uh, I don't want to say rare, but like it was uncommon in the world to get a shaman to go in adventure. So like having artificers and shaman, and I'm going to throw paladins in there as well, because they are a hybrid class. Uh, even though I think they could be a full caster, like Matt, Matt said, um, giving them more, like bringing them back, giving them a pastor to make them more versatile, um, allowing them to basically fill whatever role they want to or work towards that, I think is potentially what I want to see. I want to see a paladin that has the option of being the radiant knight in shining armor, uh, fighting on the front lines with like maybe some self-sustaining buffs or the full caster healer protector of souls or whatever you want to call it. I think that would be really, really cool if they give you the options. So I'm looking forward to seeing those. I'm looking forward to seeing what they do with the Artificer, which I hope is uh, robust. And I hope it is really, really good because Artificer is one of those classes that I've always been in love with, but I just always felt like it fell short of its full potential. And I'd like to see what they do with a full design pass with a new design philosophy. But I think that's it for today. Unless anybody else has anything to add before we call it a night. Dude, I have like another hour to add. Let's just go before I do it. <laughs> 
All right. Well, Blizzard Watch, and by extension, Tavern Watch, is made possible due to the generous contributions at patreon.com slash blizzardwatch. Your continued support means this podcast signing community is able to thrive and grow. Blizzard Watch supporters enjoy exclusive benefits like early access to the podcast, a better chance at having your question answered on our podcast or the queue, and an as-free site experience. Uh, and again, if you have any questions that you want to send into any of our podcasts, including Tavern Watch, go ahead and send those into podcast at blizzardwatch.com. Specify the show that it's for so that we can go ahead and incorporate that in. Even if you have something that you want us to cover in depth, please send that idea in. Uh, if you don't want to send us an email, you can go ahead and hit us up on our Discord server. We have two channels set aside. One for Patreon supporters is a way of saying thank you for helping us keep the lights on. That's uh, the Patreon Q and Podcast Questions channel. Uh, and if you can't support us on Patreon, again, we understand times are tough and money can be tight sometimes. Uh, you can go ahead and send those into our podcast or Q and Podcast Questions channel. But also remember that if you can't support us monetarily, giving us reviews on different platforms, sharing our content out there with your friends, uh, that's another way that you can continue to support us because every new listener helps uh, help spread our word. And I'm, I'm okay with that. Hype us, please. <laughs> <laughs> but with that, folks, we'll see you next time.